take your copy of God's word and turn with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Last week we opened this chapter with a sermon on verses 1 through 11. And that sermon is incredibly important because it deals with the heart of Christian of the Christian faith. It deals with the heart of what it means to be saved. We cannot claim to follow Jesus and yet have no love for our Savior in our hearts. We saw the example of Mary's devotion to the Savior, and we saw Judas's disdain for what Mary was doing. And we saw that both of them followed Jesus. Both of them loved, quote-unquote, claimed to love Jesus, submitted their lives to him. But the Savior stands up in defense on Mary's behalf and not on Judas's. It says, Mary has done the right thing. Mary has given us a beautiful picture of what it means to truly love Jesus. That's the heart of the Christian faith, love for Jesus. And that's going to continue in these verses. These verses that we're coming to are familiar verses to us, familiar territory. The triumphal entry is one of the few passages that is found uh, regarding the life of our Lord that's found in all of the Gospels, of all four Gospels. So you know this account. But I pray that as we dive into it, you will see yet again that this account is given to us in Holy Scripture to grow our love for Jesus, to raise our affections for Jesus. So let me read these verses and then ask God's blessing on our time this morning. John chapter 12, verse 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him. They began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughters of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So... The people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason, also the people went to meet him because they heard that he had performed this sign, the raising of Lazarus. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it and he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal if anyone serves me he must follow me and where i am there my servant will be also if anyone serves me the father will honor him father i pray that you would bless our time what what powerful words god these words will change A sinful heart that cherishes and treasures sin and treasures living for their greatest joy in this life in pursuit of sin. 
these verses will change that heart if rightly seen and understood. So I pray two things this morning. God, grant grace so that we would see our king and we would bow the knee to him and grant grace so that we would see how we are to follow him. The way that he paved for us to walk, to follow in pursuit of our king. God, we will not follow a king that we do not love and cherish. So grow in us a greater love for Jesus, our king. And may we follow him together this morning. We pray it in your name. Amen. There are two clear paragraphs. There's two clear sections in this passage, as you can see. One is the triumphal entry, and the other is Jesus' interaction with this whole Greeks wishing to see him. Uh, so the two parts, if we were to kind of split them up and, and, and bring them uh, with the, the same point, a common thread through each, it would be this. that The first section is Jesus is king, and the, section, the second section is he's a different king than was expected. He is king, but he's a different kind of king. Now, you already see a different expectation in the first section. So for our intents and purposes this morning, here is our outline. Number one, we will see the presentation of the king in verses 12 through 19. The presentation of the king. Jesus is king, and he is presenting himself to Israel. Number two, verses 20 through 26, we will see the prescription to follow him as king. The prescription to follow. So we have the presentation of the king and the prescription to follow the king. Let's start with the presentation. Number one, verse 12 says on the next day. Now, we know that Jesus arrived in Bethany six days before the Passover. Verse one says that Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover came to Bethany. Six days before the Passover. We know the Passover was on Thursday. So six days before that would be Friday. So Jesus arrived in Bethany on Friday. Now, there's two possibilities of what could have happened. If he arrived on Friday, uh, there could have been a party Friday night for him. And then as the sun goes down on Friday, Sabbath begins and nobody's going to be moving around on the Sabbath day all day Saturday. And so Jesus spent the night on uh, Saturday, Friday night and Saturday night in Bethany. And so this next day would be the next day that was possible to make a move into Jerusalem. Bethany was outside of that Sabbath day zone, so you couldn't um, walk from Bethany into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Now, we know that Jesus really didn't care about the Sabbath day laws, so he's fine with breaking that law. But he wants there to be a huge crowd waiting for him, following him on Sunday. So he wouldn't walk into Jerusalem on Saturday to a couple handful of people uh, because it's the Sabbath day. So either he arrives in Bethany on Friday night and there's a party and then he just waits in Bethany on Saturday. And this is the next day after that Sunday. Or Jesus and his disciples arrive in Bethany on Friday and the party itself was Saturday and the next day after the party uh, was Sunday. Either way, I, I personally prefer the first way, but either way, Jesus rides in to Jerusalem on Sunday. Either way, he has to ride in on Sunday. He's not riding in on Saturday. So on the next day, there's a large crowd. They had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Remember, that was the question. Is he coming to the feast at all? And Jesus answers that question by going the long way around. I don't know if you remember, it was two years ago that we um, looked at the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. We looked at the, the path that Jesus took. He was in Ephraim, which is only about 
uh, 10 to 12 miles away from Jerusalem. And instead of going from Ephraim to Jerusalem on that tiny little 10 to 12 mile route, he went the long way around. He went up all the way around the Sea of Galilee, all the way on the other side of the Jordan River down and then crossed back over. Took him about four to six weeks to do that. He did that to stay alive, to draw a crowd together, to make sure that nobody would uh, take his life. He had to get to Jerusalem to be killed by the Romans on the Passover, on the day after the Passover. So we know that Jesus kept himself alive and he made this crowd happen. There's a large crowd. They had come to the feast and they heard that Jesus was coming. So they took the branches of the palm trees, verse 13, and they went out to meet him. They took those branches and they went out to meet him. Now, this is a large crowd. We don't know how many people are here. We know that uh, Josephus actually tells us there were 2.7 million people in Jerusalem during the Passover. Um, now, most commentators would say that's a little bit of a high estimation, Mr. Josephus. Um, so even if it's 2 million or even if it's a little bit lower than 2 million, we have millions of people in Jerusalem for the Passover. And normally Jerusalem holds just a little over 100,000 people. So this place is just massive. There's a crowd all over the place. And they go out to see Jesus. There's a lot of people here. And they take palm branches. Why palm branches? You have to trace this all the way back to the, the time of the Maccabees. In 164 B.C., there was a guy by the name of Judas Maccabeus who was a Jewish man who was fighting against Antiochus Epiphanes. He beats Antiochus Epiphanes. And when he does, as the Jews rededicate the temple that Antiochus Epiphanes had taken over, as they rededicate their temple again, they bring palm branches in, almost as a way of cleansing the temple. They place the palm branches as they step onto um, their precious ground in the temple. Ever since that, the palm branch signified victory, signified overcoming, conquering, signified a very national symbol, a very nationalistic symbol. Um, so much so that they were used on Jewish coins. Uh, Jews put the palm branches on their coins to say, see, we can fight anybody and win if we want to. And this, was, this symbol of the palm branch was so well known that the Romans, when they freshly minted new coins in Jerusalem, they actually put palm branches on their coins too to say, hmm, we can beat you too. Um, don't, don't, don't get any ideas because any revolt that happens will beat you. You want this to mean conquering and overcoming and victory? We can beat you too. So they're, they're hailing their king with palm branches, with palm trees, to say, victory's about to happen. Our king is coming to give us victory. They went out to meet him and they began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. That's a direct quotation from Psalm 118, verse 25. Hosanna, just transliterated Hebrew word. Hoshana means save us now. We will die without you. We need a leader. We need a king. We need a Messiah. So save us. Now, they believe that they are about to receive salvation from the oppression of the Romans. Uh, you and I both know that that's not what's going to be happening. They're welcoming their king. But notice Jesus doesn't stop them as they welcome him because he is king. I am king, but just not in the way that they are thinking. They cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord's servant has been sent to bring salvation from our, our oppressors. Verse 14, Jesus finding a young donkey. It's a beautiful way that John describes that finding in quotes. We know from the synoptic gospels that he didn't find just, oh, hey, there's a there's a donkey. We'll take that one. 
He made this happen. He planned this. Remember, he told the disciples, go into the city. There will be a donkey and a colt tied up. So we've got a, a mama donkey and we've got a baby donkey. And I want you to take them both for me, for my purpose. Now, that's like stealing somebody's car because this is transportation. So what Jesus asks his disciples to do is, can you please go steal their car? And they say, uh, that's not going to be that's not going to go over well with them. This is their ride. How are we going to make that happen? And he says, don't worry. When they ask you um, what you're doing, you're supposed to respond. You remember the response? The Lord has need of it. The master has need of it. I am sure that as they're walking, looking around for this donkey and colt pair tied up somewhere that they're going, there is no way that the master has need of it is going to work. And as they show up to somebody's house, they just look in, okay, and they start on time, they start walking away. Hey, what are you doing with our ride? Um, the master has need of it. Like, That's going to work. Oh, okay, you can have it. What? I mean, at every turn, the disciples' faith is continually bolstered by what Jesus is saying, and yet they still don't see the connection here. So we know that Jesus doesn't just find, I think John's putting it, that way to give us a little bit of irony, to give us a little bit of a laugh here to say, we know Jesus is planning everything that's happening here. He sat on the young colt. He didn't sit on the mama donkey. He sat on the colt and he had the mama donkey ride next to and in front of the little colt so that the colt wouldn't get spooked. Verse 15 says, this is also prophetic. Uh, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. The words fear not are actually not in Zechariah 9.9. They're actually in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. But that section of Scripture in Isaiah 40 also attaches to this understanding of the Messiah coming. So both are put together. Don't be afraid. And then daughter of Zion and following is a quote directly from Zechariah 9.9. If you go there, Zechariah 9.9 says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Yes, We have a king and he's coming. Finally, we're going to be free. He's just, he's coming with salvation, but he's humble and mounted on a donkey. And not just a donkey. A donkey would be humble enough. He's mounted on the colt, the foal of a donkey, a baby donkey. Instead of riding in on a war horse, Jesus rides in on a baby donkey. So I am king, but I am king not in the way that you think. Now, we typically give the Jewish people a very, very bad rap. Like, why didn't they get that Jesus was coming in to die and to not take care of Rome? Let's just, let's give them the benefit of the doubt on this one because read verse 10. So we got verse 9 that says, he's coming. He's humble. He's on a baby donkey, but he's coming. What is he going to do? I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the boat of war will be cut off. He will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from the sea to the sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So he's coming as king to bring peace, to establish his rule. So I can understand where the Jews would have, would have thought that Messiah was coming only to be a political ruler. Jesus says, I am king, but just not in the way that you think I am. The Synoptic Gospels also tell us, by the way, Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all deal with the triumphal entry, Matthew is Matthew 21, uh, Mark is Mark 11, and Luke is Luke 19. They all deal with the triumphal entry. And they all tell us that there's another thing that's being thrown out into the road, and it's their coats. Their coats are being thrown out. It's a picture of submission. You can walk all over us. You are our king. We are your loyal subjects. 
And this is a beautiful expression of their devotion to him as king. But he's not the king that they think he is. So here is Jesus fulfilling scripture. He fulfills, if you remember two years ago, we talked about three prophecies that he fulfilled. He fulfilled the manner, the meaning, and the moment that was prophesied in the Old Testament of when he would arrive in the triumphal entry in Jerusalem. The manor is Zechariah 9.9, riding in on a baby donkey. He's unannounced by a herald. This is a humble way of entering into Jerusalem. And it was prophesied 500 years before this ever even happened that it would happen exactly the way that it happened. The meaning of this triumphal entry is found for us in Psalm 118. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord's servant is here. He is the chief cornerstone that's going to be rejected But he's going to become everything for us, the foundation for everything that we do. This is the day that the Lord has made. This day, the presentation of the king is the the day the Lord has made. We can rejoice and be glad in it. And finally, the exact moment to the day is prophesied for us in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. This is where Daniel says it'll be 483 years from the decree of Artaxerxes to the Messiah coming. So 483 years, the decree of Artaxerxes was handed down uh, to rebuild Jerusalem in 445 B.C., 483 years to the day is this moment when Jesus rides in on a donkey. I know we covered that fast, but um, we did that all in depth two years ago. Jesus is, is king over every molecule that's happening in this moment. He doesn't just find a cult. He planned that that would happen because that had to happen to fulfill prophecy that was given 500 years before. The exact moment that he enters was prophesied. He knew. He made it happen. And this is so obvious to us, but the people around didn't see it. Verse 16. These things his disciples didn't understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that he had, that he had done all these things. So if they struggled to see Jesus's control. We will struggle too. We'll, we'll struggle to see that control. We'll, we'll, we'll struggle to submit to it. We'll kick against it. A similar remark is made for us in John chapter two, verse twenty-two. You remember Jesus after he cleanses the temple the very first time, he says, "Destroy this this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days." And they don't know what he's talking about. And it says, after he was killed and and buried and raised from the dead, then his disciples remembered that saying. Um, they remember after everything happens. It's probably because of the Holy Spirit being given to them. John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus says that the Spirit, when he comes, will bring to remembrance everything that I've told you and make it known to you, make it clear. You'll understand. They didn't get it there. This just always reminds me that we need to be very gentle and patient with people around us who who don't get it. Whatever it is, and they're struggling to understand it, to see it, and to get it, the disciples didn't get it, and they were face-to-face with the Messiah. And by the way, we don't get it either. We struggle. So the disciples finally understand once Jesus has been glorified. Glorified, what does that mean? It doesn't have to always mean just his ascension. When Jesus is glorified, it means his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, all of it together, what he came for. And so after he was glorified, after he had died, was buried, raised from the dead, and ascended into heaven, then they remembered. Then they remembered. How did the people react to all of this? Verse 17, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him up from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason, also the people went to meet him because they heard that he'd performed this sign. 
Of course they're excited. They think we're about to start a, a massive military conquest with Rome. Rome is always defeating everybody that they're fighting, but we have the captain who can raise dead people. So if I go to battle with him, then if I get slaughtered by the Romans, he can raise me back to life and I can keep fighting. I would like to be behind that captain. That's a good captain to follow if you know you're going into war. Of course they're excited. Verse 19, we have a group of people who's not excited. They rarely are. The Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Maybe they're speaking to the Sadducees. Maybe they're speaking to the Sanhedrin. You guys, you're supposed to make this guy stop and you're not doing any good. And look, the whole world, the cosmos, everyone's going after him. And now that's a common expression to say, nobody's following us, everybody's following him. But I wonder if John puts this here, wanting us to see yet another unwitting prophecy. Um, Just like Caiaphas, who said, uh, Jesus has to die one man for the nation to preserve all these people. Here, too, they're saying everyone's going after him. And what John is going to tell us is, yes, truly everyone is going after him, not just Jews. We have Jews going after Jesus as their Messiah in the triumphal entry. But verse 20, Greeks show up. And I think if you are one who marks in your Bible, you could circle Greeks, draw a line over to world and circle world. The Pharisees say the whole world's going after him. And John says, yes, the whole world is going after him. Remember, Jesus came for the world. John 3:16. he loves the world. And so not just Jew, but also Gentile, Jesus is going after him. So we have the presentation of the king. He is king, just not in the way that they would have expected him to be. And they're going to be confused by that the entire time up until his death and then even past his death. They're going to struggle. But now we get to the prescription of how to follow him. If he's king, and we know rightly the kind of king he is, how do I follow him? I want to follow him. How do I follow him? Verse 20. uh, This is the prescription to follow him. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. We have some Greeks. We don't have an explicit mention of what day this is. Most people would say this is either Monday or Tuesday of the Passion Week. So we have the triumphal entry on Sunday. And then verse 20, when it starts with that word now, that's not uh, chronologically right after Jesus rides in, that it has to be on Sunday. The synoptics all tell us what happens on Sunday. He rides in to Jerusalem. There's a huge crowd of people. There is Pharisee. There are Pharisees that are saying, you cannot allow your disciples to praise you. And he says, even if I uh, tell them to stop, the rocks are going to cry out. This is the day that the Lord has made. We are going to rejoice. It's going to happen. He rides into Jerusalem. He rides into the temple, looks around and leaves and goes back to Bethany. That's all he does. Monday, he goes in and he cleanses the temple. He goes in and he cleanses the temple. I would put what happens in verses 20 through 26 and following in uh, Monday of the Passion Week, after the cleansing of the temple. So, Jesus has cleansed the temple. Remember one of the reasons why he cleansed the temple? There's three main reasons he cleansed the temple. One is because there were animal sellers. Remember that whole uh, funny business that they were cheating people out of money with the animal sellers? Your your animal's unclean, even though it really is clean. I'm going to lie about it. Oh, you have to purchase one of our animals? For sacrifice, so the animal sellers line, the money changers, the extortion on the exchange rate that they had their own temple currency. Oh, I'm sorry, no money outside of our temple works, so you always had to change money 
to always purchase the lamb because your lamb's always unclean. Um, Jesus was very angry about that, and rightfully so. But the third thing, you remember what he says, my house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations. You're not allowing all nations to enter here. Jesus isn't um, just righteously angry at their greed and their lying. He's righteously angry at their racism. Only Jews are allowed to worship the Messiah. You're not allowed if you're not a Jew. And so Jesus, when he goes to take over the temple, cleanses it, takes control of it Monday and Tuesday of the Passion Week, teaches, he, he controls everything. Uh, Mark tells us he doesn't even let a man with a pitcher of water cross uh, the temple mount. Um, he commands even to the person what they're allowed to do. He owns the temple. He took over and he taught. He's knocking down the dividing wall of hostility that's mentioned in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. It's being torn down already even here. And so these Greeks show up. They're going to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip, verse 21, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. Um, Philip will go to Andrew. Philip and Andrew are the only two of the disciples who are always mentioned by Greek names. Every other disciple has a Hebrew name. Thomas, you can say sometimes he's called by a Greek name, sometimes by a Hebrew name. Philip and Andrew are always given, are always called by their Greek names. So maybe that's why these Greeks went up to Philip. He's also from Bethsaida, which is a very Greek town. So maybe that's another reason why they went. We don't know why they want to see Jesus. Verse 21, sir, we wish to see Jesus, but we don't know why. We don't know if they're just curious. We don't know if they are one of the crowd that heard that he raised a man from the dead. We don't know if they're genuine worshipers. We would like to think so because they're going up to worship at the feast. But there are many who are going up to worship at the feast that are false worshipers. So we don't know. We don't really need to know. I think what John is telling us here is Jesus is not just a king to the Jews. He's not just a Jewish Messiah. He is that and more. He's also king to the Gentiles. Remember how Matthew opens his letter Matthew opens his gospel by saying that uh, when Jesus is born, there's wise men from the east that come, right? We've got uh, Jews that are there that are worshiping, these shepherds that are worshiping. And then we also have wise men that come, Gentiles that come to worship Jesus as Messiah, as king. I think that's what John is doing here. This is John's wise men, if you will. It's wise men from the west coming over and worshiping. Non-Jewish people going to worship the Savior. So they say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. We want to see him. But maybe we can't because, remember, the temple was divided up. There's a Jewish court on the inside. There's a Gentile court. And you could go that far and no further. They say, we can't get in. We want to get in. We want to see him. And we know that he'll make allowance for us to go in to see him because he said, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. We want to see him. How can that happen? Philip doesn't really know That's why he doesn't answer. He goes, "Um, I'll get back to you. And he runs and he asks Andrew, Andrew, what do we do? These Greeks want to see Jesus. We want them to see Jesus. But how do we make sure they they go in without being unclean? What are we supposed to do? And Andrew goes, I don't know. Let's go ask Jesus. So they both go together. Jesus, there are these Greeks that want to see you. Verse 23, Jesus answered, saying. Notice he doesn't say, oh, let them in. Notice he doesn't say, uh, not right now. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
at first that does not seem like an appropriate response. We want to see Jesus. And by the way, in the Greek construction of that question, it's an ongoing, continuous. Can we please, can it happen now? We really want to see him. Can, is it now? Can we go? And he says, the, the hour has come. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That doesn't really seem to match. Now, it does match. It does match. The Greeks, we are never told whether they see Jesus or not. And I think that John is helping us here. Do you want to see Jesus? I, I can't wait. seems like every day, just more bad things in life happen. And every day you just, you long for heaven that much more. Every day you look around at life and you say, I cannot wait to be home. And not just because of all of the amazing, unbelievable perks of heaven. Amen and amen. I cannot wait to go surfing and not be afraid of getting bitten by a shark. That's going to be amazing. There's a fear that sometimes keeps me out of the water. But above all those things, if Jesus isn't in heaven, it's not heaven. I want to see Jesus. Just like these Greeks wanted to see Jesus, right? We cannot see Jesus here. Jesus is in heaven and we want to see him. And that's why this answer is so crucial. Because if you say, I want to see Jesus and I'm discontent because I can't see him. Jesus' answer to the Greeks, who, by the way, probably did not see Jesus, his answer is the exact same answer for us. If you want to see me, I will reveal myself to you. I will reveal myself to you, but not the way that you want. You want to see me physically? The Greeks are saying, we want to hang out with him. We want to talk with him. We want to dialogue with him. I want to see Jesus. I want to hang out with him. I want to talk to him. I want to dialogue with him. But Jesus says, let me speak. And by speaking, you will know me, you will see me, you will be able to be in a relationship with me. Let me speak. So he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You want to see me, there's something that I must do. I must be glorified. Now, when he said that, there's a crowd around him. When he said the hour has come, two things. Number one, when he says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, I think that there would be a huge yell of excitement, and then a hush to see what he's going to say next. Son of man, that's a a very messianic title from the book of Daniel. Son of man is going to come. He's going to be the Messiah. The Messiah has the title of son of man. Here he comes, and now it's my hour to be glorified. I think everybody would have been so excited. And this is it. He's going to give us marching orders. We're going to take Rome. Secondly, notice he says the hour has come. Multiple times in John thus far, the hour hasn't come. Not yet. My hour has not come. But here Jesus says, it's time. It's time. I'm going to the cross. That's what I came for. It's not what they thought the Son of Man was going to do. But he says, if you want to see me, as they are asking me, I want to see you. He says, then I must be glorified. That's the only way you can rightly see me. But my glorification isn't going to happen the way that you think it's going to happen. You think that glory is the coming of the physical kingdom. But my glorification is my death. Please hear clearly. Jesus is not glorified in spite of the cross. Jesus is glorified through and in the cross. It is the cross that brings Jesus the glory that he is speaking about here. So he says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
And then to explain that, he's going to say verse 24. But he starts it by saying, truly, truly. And I believe he says that this is true. This statement is true. Because this is such a staggering, confusing statement that people would have a hard time believing it. So he says, the hour has come, the Son of Man to be glorified, but not glorified the way you think I'm going to be glorified. Let me tell you how I'm going to be glorified. Let me tell you how you are going to see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is a very simple analogy. Inside of every kernel of wheat are millions of similar offspring that can come forth. If the grain goes into the ground as uh, like a tomb going into the ground, if it dies, it sets forth what is encased inside of it, and it can bear much fruit. F.F. Um, F. Bruce says it this way, As long as the seed remains in the grain, it's preserved by its outside shell. Only when the seed is put in the soil does it begin to decompose and to rot away. And when the shell decomposes and rots away, the life inside begins to flourish. It gives life to a huge plant, which produces more seeds and more seeds, and on and on it goes. So therefore, what Jesus is saying is grain that remains alone, bearing no fruit, produces nothing unless it dies. If a grain just stays by itself and does not go into the ground, does not die, it will not produce anything. So what Jesus is saying is, if I do not die, I remain alone. If I don't die, I cannot populate heaven. And if I don't die, the Greeks that are wanting to see me can never see me. If I don't die, I can't have anybody to be with me. Jews, Gentiles, Greeks, Americans. I can't have anyone if I don't die. Notice that Jesus' example of a good life, a loving life, is not enough to establish a kingdom. His transfiguration, as glorious as that was, was not enough to establish a kingdom. His wisdom was not enough to establish the kingdom. His knowledge, his kindness, all of those things were not enough to populate heaven. What needed to happen was he needed to die. He needed to die. So Jesus is saying, unless I die, there can be no one in heaven. But I want you to be in heaven. I want the Greeks to see me, therefore I must die. So Jesus answers that way. And he starts by saying, truly, truly, this is not what you expect to hear. I am king, but not in the way that you think. But then he doesn't stop there. So he says, okay, I came for the Jews. He presented himself triumphantly to the Jews. I also came for the Greeks. The Greeks are longing to see me. In verse 25, he opens it up universally. These are the whoever's that we see in John. So we've got Jews. I came as king for the Jews. I came as king for the Greeks. And if anybody wants to follow me as king, they may do so. Anyone. This is a universal offer. If you want to see me and be with me, then you follow what I'm doing. I will be a grain that dies and will bear much fruit. You do the same. You die and you will gain your life. This is a universal invitation, but it's a universal invitation to die. So he says this, verse 25. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So please note, there's three very clear statements that Jesus makes here. If you want to follow Jesus, 
There are three prescriptions he makes right here. And before we dive into the three, they're obvious, but before we dive into them, Jesus himself is setting the pattern. His death for our salvation is also his design for our imitation. His death for our salvation is also his design for us to imitate. And there are two very clear things in the pattern that he sets out. I have to die, but then I bear much fruit. This is very challenging, but also very glorious. His pattern is set out in verse 23 and 24 to say, I must be glorified, I must die, and then I will bear much fruit. So the Son of Man must suffer in order to receive glory. Suffering always precedes glory. And if this is true of Jesus as our King, then it must be true of his followers. It must be true of us. We must be prepared to renounce the present interests in this world for the sake of a future inheritance that is to come. This is John's deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Matthew, Mark and Luke all say that explicitly from the lips of Jesus. John never says that, but this is John's version of that. You need to deny yourself. You need to take up your cross and you need to follow me. You need to follow me both in peril to the cross and in reward to bearing much fruit. And just as Jesus's crucifixion is the path to his glorification, so the believer's death is the path to their glorification as well. Peter says it really well in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. You've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. He left us an example. So what's the example? What's the pattern that he's left us? Number one, in verse 25, you must hate your life. If you want to follow Jesus, prescription number one is you must hate your life. Verse 25, he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. D.A. Carson says it very well. The person who loves their life will lose it. Of course they will. I love how he says that. Of course they will. Well, thank you, Mr. D.A. Carson. I appreciate that you know what's happening. Help me understand. He says this. To love your own life, to love yourself, is to deny God's sovereignty and to deny God's rights over you as your creator. And to elevate yourself as the one who is most worthy of love and adoration. To love your own life, to love yourself, is to deny God's sovereignty, his rule over your life, and to say, I'm the most worthy thing in this life of being adored. I am the most worthy person to be treasured and cherished. And D.A. Carson rightfully says, this is the heart of all sin. This is the heart of all sin. You can't love yourself and adore yourself as greater than everyone else. You must deny yourself. Remember, this attaches so perfectly with what we talked about last week. It's all about love and hate, devotion and affection. It's all about do you love Jesus or do you love yourself? That's the question. Do you love Jesus or do you love yourself? Now, let's be clear. You don't ultimately hate your life. You hate your life in this world. You hate your life in this world. You give up earthly pleasures in this world because you do love your life and you want to live life eternal. But you deny yourself right now. You adore someone else. You don't worship yourself. You worship someone else. Yourself must be displaced by the love for another. The endless, shameless focus on yourself must be displaced by focus on Jesus, who is our supreme treasure The greatest gift in this entire world. We must love him more than we love anything in this world. So we must hate our lives. We must deny ourselves. We must die to ourselves. 
in order to live life eternal. Now, let's say two things very clearly. Number one, as believers, we do not believe that we get our best life now, right? We do not believe that we have the best life possible as far as pleasures and satisfaction is concerned in this life. We are looking forward to heaven when our faith will be made sight and we finally get to be with our Savior for all of eternity. So our best life is not now. But at the same time, using Jesus' own words in John chapter 17, verse 3, we get eternal life now, and Jesus says eternal life is to know God and know Jesus. So we have eternal life now. So yes, our best life is later, but to know Jesus is the best possible thing for us, and we can know him now. So as we deny ourselves, we are still gaining something that is greater than we could possibly imagine. Number two, prescription number two, he says, follow me. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If you want to serve me, if you want to be in my courts, if you want to be in my kingdom to serve me, you must follow me. You must follow me as I go to Calvary. You must follow me as I die, you must die. And prescription number three is you must serve me. If anyone serves me, end of verse 26, the Father will honor him. In a world that prizes power and prestige, it's a very challenging thing to be a slave. It's a very challenging thing to humble yourself and to enjoy being a servant, to be a slave. He says, if you want to be in my kingdom, if you want to follow me, you must hate your life, you must follow me, and you must serve me. But please note, this is so crucial. This is why I'm not a monk. This is why I don't shave my head. This is why I live with a smile on my face and joy and gladness in my heart. Hard does not equal joyless. Hard does not equal joyless. Jesus says you must hate your life in this world. Wow, that seems hard. But it's not joyless because you gain eternal life. Every single prescription is given with a promise. Hate your life, but you'll keep it to life eternal. Well, of course I want that. Which would you rather have? Would you rather have your life now and just live for yourself and love yourself and and be king over every decision you make here and now? And then when you die, you live in eternity under the wrath of God? Or would you rather not be king in your own life now and submit your will to to the will of another? And then when you die, you get paradise and bliss and satisfaction forever. Which would you rather have? Jesus says, if you follow me, yes, you're going to have to die, but you're also going to be where I am. So hard doesn't equal joyless. You get to be with me where I am. Yes, you're going to go through a difficult road. I had to die. You're going to have to die too. And you will then be with me where I am. And then finally, he says, if you serve me, this is, this is just, this is so weighty that you cannot say the right words to attach to how beautiful this is. Look at the end of verse 26. If anyone serves me, the Father, that's the maker of the universe, God himself will honor him. You will be given honor when you enter heaven. You will be. It's what C.S. Lewis calls the weight of glory, to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. The, The Father himself will honor us. So hard does not equal joyless. Yes, it is a difficult road. The prescription is to die, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him. But it's not a joyless death. Simply put, follow me is the sum of our duty. Follow him to death. And where I am is the sum 
of our reward. We get him. Follow him to death and you get him. Don't follow him. Do whatever you want and you don't get him. And you will live regretting that decision for all of eternity. What do we do with these, these two sections? We have our presentation of the king. We have the prescription of how to follow him. Just two points in conclusion, really quickly. Number one, Jesus is our king. He is our sovereign. He is sovereign over everything. He ordained everything that would happen the exact way that it would happen on Sunday morning of the triumphal entry. But people didn't see that. They wanted to worship Jesus the way that they wanted Jesus to be. And so we always need to stop and say, do we worship a Jesus who is made in our image and likeness? Or do we worship Jesus as he has been clearly revealed to us in Scripture? We have to bow the knee to Jesus as our king. But number two, in conclusion, if you want to follow him, you must die. I have been crucified with Christ, therefore it's no longer I who live, but Jesus who lives in me. To, to live as Christ, to die is gain. My life has been swallowed up in the life of Jesus, therefore I have no will anymore. Patrick Carmichael, as you knew him, died to himself and has been raised as a new creature in Christ. The old things, my old will, my old affections, my old desire have passed. New things have come. He's called us to surrender all. And this could easily end as a sermon of you need to try harder. You need to do better. Life should probably stink for you because you're pursuing Jesus on the road to Calvary. And that's where I just want to end. That's the way that the gospel of following Jesus has been typically preached in many evangelical circles. If you want to follow Jesus, life's going to be hard and it's going to stink. You need to die. Sorry, let's end in prayer. I think that's one of the reasons why people don't want to follow Jesus. If I have an option of living the life I want to live and kind of having it be okay, or living the way Jesus wants me to live, well, in this life, I'd much rather just pick my, my road. I get to do what I want to do, and, and life isn't too bad, and I get to enjoy it. I'd much rather go that route. If you look at what you're giving up in this life, and that's all you stare at, oh, I've got to give these things up, I've got to give my will up, I have to give my life up, and we're going to go, ah, Here's the question. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? My family is playing a vacation at Disneyland, um, which when it comes to Disneyland, uh, we've been saving for like three years to go on this trip. It's literally like, Chelsea, you can either go to Disneyland or to college. Pick your, <laughs> pick your choice here. She said she'd rather go to Disneyland, so we're going there instead of college. I, I look at the price to purchase tickets. I look at the cost that that is to me. And it hurts. It hurts. Like, I don't even have to go the Dave Ramsey method of actually paying cash. It hurts with swiping a credit card. It hurts. It's painful. But those of you who have kids, you know it's worth it the moment that Ethan meets Pooh Bear. That's worth it. I'm just giving, here, have my money. The moment that Chelsea sees Dory and Nemo, that's it. Have my, it's, uh, it's worth it, right? We know that it's worth it. And, and then we're saving all over again to take Tyler when he's older. We're doing it over again. It just, if you step back and you look at it and you go, wait, what, what, look at the cost. You say, no, but absolutely it's worth it. For Ethan to hear Lightning McQueen sing happy birthday to him. 
uh, I'll, I'll pay whatever it costs to have that happen. So, yes, Jesus asks us to do something very, very difficult. And it, it will cost you everything. But instead of looking at the cost this morning, can we look at what we gain? Instead of looking at, I have to hate my life, follow him to death, and I have to serve him and be his slave, instead of looking at those things, let's look at, I get to be with him forever. Where I am, he will be. And he will honor me. He'll bestow honor onto me. If we understand, though the cost is great, that it is worth that cost to gain those things. If you grow your love for those three things, the cost, even though it's massive, will start to go down in your mind. And you'll say, well, why would I cling to this if all I have to do is give this up to gain Jesus? Father, I pray that you would help us to see clearly that Jesus is worth every sacrifice that we will ever make. Every sacrifice we will ever make will be worth it on that last day when we hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Every single one. God, I pray that you would grow in us a greater love for Jesus so that those sacrifices that are truly great, at great cost to ourselves, that those sacrifices would seem so small compared to what we get by giving those things up. It's so simple. May we give those things up to gain something that is truly priceless, a relationship with the Son of God for all of eternity. We love him, and we pray that he would grow in us a greater love for him so that all of the things that we give up would seem as rubbish, as nothing, that the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace.